You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Today we have a wonderful guest with us. I want to have a special welcome for Dominique Orr. Dominique is the president and CEO of Aruba Networks. Interestingly enough, he was the chairman of the board of Aruba before they asked him to take on the presidency. So we'll hear a little bit about that. He has 20 years of experience in the IT world, uh, working at HP for many years, Alpheon Web Systems, uh, Bay Networks, and Hughes Aircraft. And uh, if you look back to a few years before that, he got his undergraduate degree in physics and then a PhD in neuroscience from Caltech. So Dominic, welcome. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, this is <laughs> a great pleasure and honor to be uh, speaking in front of such a youthful audience, which I have not done for a while. Great, well, I bet they're gonna challenge you. I wanna let you know, we're gonna um, talk, I'm gonna interview Dominic for about 40 minutes and then open it up to questions. So feel free to think of your questions along the way because you'll certainly have time to ask them later. So I'm really curious. Uh, you had a very interesting and very successful career before becoming the CEO and president of Aruba. What made you want to jump from being the chairman to being the president? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the company and why that was such an intriguing opportunity. Well, sure. Uh, I think jumping is a pretty strong word. I think it took me almost three years to be dragged uh, into the uh, opportunity. Uh, the thing is, uh, I was very excited that uh, not very frequently, uh, in fact, probably very few opportunity every decade, you have a chance to capitalize on a big uh, major shift of market uh, to, to create a company uh, of, of leading technology and uh, application at the IT infrastructure for, uh, in this case, in Aruba, the, the enterprise uh, customers worldwide, the large enterprise customers. And uh, that, that shift was really driven by a couple of factors. You know, Aruba is in the business of building large, distributed, secure wireless network for enterprise use. We're not in the you know, building out singular and that kind of business, but we are uh, in the business of enabling companies such as Microsoft, Yahoo, Google, SAP, and so on, to uh, allow them a very um, distributed, uh, secure, uh, currently Wi-Fi, and in the future, any form of wireless environment to support multimedia uh, for, uh, for applications. So, so the, the major uh, kind of uh, turning point uh, for, for, for the industry is uh, with the mobilization of the workforces and the virtualization of the corporation, the, the whole flat world phenomenon. Uh, now people uh, are working anywhere within and outside of a, a corporation, large corporation. Uh, but the traditional uh, IT and network security infrastructure, uh, such as uh, routers and switches provided by Cisco and, uh, and, and firewalls and VPN, uh, I hope I'm not overburdening you of these uh, terminologies, uh, from, from companies like Juniper and, and, and Cisco and Checkpoint is, is assuming a fixed infrastructure. It assumes that uh, people actually work within building and uh, the, the good behaving users are inside the four wall of a building and the potential hackers and malicious users are outside and therefore we create this kind of IP network that is really port to port uh, and you, we uh, created uh, this, this idea called a, uh, a DMZ, a demilitarized zone with firewalls protecting those, those ports. Uh, the, the issue is now people with uh, wireless devices uh, are, are expecting to get on network anywhere. How do you really address 
at the same time, mobility and security. And Aruba happened to have a, an architecture that addressed this very well, that sits on top of the Cisco and Nortel uh, and Alcatel network. And um, because of that, I get personally very excited. Uh, I was uh, also, to be honest, uh, kind of getting bored of planting trees in the backyard and cooking for the kids. And uh, <laughs> how, can you, how long have you done? I've planted over 200 trees since my every time. And by the time they asked me <laughs> to be there. Uh, and um, uh, so, so I think uh, the combination of the, the two is, uh, is, is a very, very good um, decision that I made to uh, uh, start out as an angel investor, uh, a board member, a chairman, and then a CEO of Aruba Network since um, uh, April of 2006, I became the CEO. Well, I'm fascinated with the fact that you spent 12 years at HP, and HP was known to have, of course, the HP way and very, very strong culture. How has that affected your running of a company like Aruba that's a small company that's very quickly growing? Uh, does that culture translate easily or not? So, so um, HP is a, a big phenomenon, right? And, and there is the, the OHP and then the, the intermediate HP and then the current HP. Uh, so uh, I have to preface by, the, first of all, I left HP in 1994, uh, and uh, also the, it's a little bit presumptuous for me to try to capture in a couple minutes the, the sense of what is called HP way, but if I would dare to do so, I would say fundamentally, at least the HP way that I grew up in as a manager, uh, uh, get distilled down to one thing, which is from a just pure business good judgment, the productivity of your employees can be maximized by giving each one of them dignity and freedom and trust and, and let them uh, create passion uh, based on that confidence and, and, and run for it. Right? So uh, that is a very, very noble goal. And, and, and as you can imagine, actually it needs more management technique than a much more controlled environment. And uh, at, at least at the time that I was there, uh, one of the criticism uh, of this approach is that uh, if you're not careful, then you run into uh, kind of a, a consensus management because then now you are all feeling good and, and no decisions are being made. And uh, I think it was at that juncture, uh, they, f they felt that they were losing the speed to execute. Uh, and, and they need some changes. And then uh, the, the previous uh, generation of management came in and took it the other way uh, to be very, very dictatorial and so on. And I, I heard recently it, uh, it, it got back. So, so how do I translate that uh, into a, a startup environment, right? Uh, I think in a startup environment, um, it is very, very important, even doubly important, to give that dignity and respect for the, for, 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 for the employees because uh, it is a self-sorting population out there. If people kind of just wanted the middle of road, road, road guys, they would probably stay in large corporations. When the fact that they could uh, leave a safe job and come join the startup for a salary cut for some upside, they, they normally come with some passion. And if you don't let them uh, cultivate that, uh, that is uh, that's very very um, difficult um, uh, to to make them feel happy. Uh, and and also because it is a small environment, much more focused. This whole danger of being running into a consensus management uh, environment is, uh, is lessened, actually, in a small environment. So I, uh, in all the companies I, I apply, I try to, uh, uh, all the companies I manage, I try to apply the HP way, and uh, I think people appreciate it. You know. Great. Yeah. Interesting. So it does seem to translate. You yes, can yes. move it from a big company into a small, high-growth company. I, I absolutely think so, because it all boils down to, is at the individual level, 
uh, the, the, the dignity and, 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 and freedom that you, you give, give the you. trust. Uh, and when people feel trusted, they, they go, go for it. That's so. great. Now, one of the interesting things about Aruba is that you have decided to come head-to-head -head with some very big giants in the industry, such as Cisco. Now, how does a small company have the, the sort of the confidence to, and the strategy to go against a big giant like that? So um, we do day-to-day, -day, you know, from a product level uh, point of view, uh, have two competitors um, only, and it's Cisco and Motorola. Okay, so it, uh, uh, and and we kind of find this uh, kind of a space in between. And when when you operate in that kind of environment, you cannot think of your of those giants as your competitors. You you're dead, right? You have to think of them as an environment in which you excel. So every product that you build, even plan to about think about, uh, has to fit into the whole ecosystem, the environment that these big guys have, and you just look for what is really breaking that they cannot fix. Uh, I've done enough um, stuff now, so I, I, I really, if you ask me to distill to the formula of success of this, a small company competing against big company, it all boils down to one factor, and that is speed. Speed of execution, right, and speed of innovation. Uh, and that's not to say the co large companies, people are any less speedy. But the, but, but the benefit of the big company is, 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 is that they, they have uh, the inertia, but the drawback is they have the inertia, right? So, uh, well, I remember when I first entered the industry, there's a popular saying that uh, uh, the reason God could create heaven and earth in seven days because she and he or he uh, did not have any install base, right? So, uh, <laughs> so uh, the, big, the, the, the big company have this legacy of stuff that they have to sell, and they have a certain expectation in Wall Street of what, what uh, to, uh, to project and, and so on. They, they have to stay the course. They, you can always map out in three, four, five quarters where, where they will be. And the, the way that you react is that you, you say that I'm going to get there faster. I'm going to get there with a vision that they cannot afford to execute because by executing that new vision, it's going to tank the, the current a business, right? So uh, yes, we have uh, probably in, through that self-sorting process, the smaller company have probably a higher density of uh, uh, more—I won't say competent, but uh, more motivated people who, you know, have the excellence and yet and and the drive to to make things happen. But let's not fool ourselves. You know, Cisco, Motorola—they have lots and lots of talents as well. Every bit, if you take individual by individual and, and look at the best engineers. Uh, they probably have equally or even better uh, engineers, right? So there's not a fallacy of some, some really you know, brilliant guru sitting on a, a mountaintop and create this big th uh, thing. Uh, what we're really relying on for all the startup is the ability to go speed, full speed ahead without the burden of that install base. And uh, you, you have to, to kind of just drill that, right? Because take a look at it. I, I just sum up uh, Aruba Network is a five and a half year old company. If I sum up every single dollar we put in R&D in the last five, five and a half years, Cisco spent that within five days, right? Less than five days. That's, that's how dramatic the, the, the difference is. There's no way that you can outsmart um, this big guy. You can just outspeed them. Uh -huh. Very interesting. Now, interesting, you've taken two companies public. 
Now, Aruba just went public a few months ago. Does oh that gosh. change your risk profile? Does that change the way you do business? Of course, before you're public, people aren't looking at it with the same sort of uh, eyes. They are not paying attention quarter to quarter. Uh, are you getting closer to a Cisco just by going over that, you know, th that sort of barrier from being a public to a, uh, being a private to a public company? So I, I mean, I've uh, done this twice, once in 1999 and uh, once in the 2007, eight years apart. Uh, first of all, I'd like to comment on the dramatic environment between when I took Altion Public and, and Aruba. Uh, in 1999, uh, the, the mood was such so so vibrant, right? And then the, you always go for this IPO row show. You go into the Boston and Fidelity and New York is you know all this big uh, you know um, uh, uh, bank in line. So and, and and all the big black limo is triple parked. You cannot even go down there. And when you go up there, you can see the portfolio manager come in. He has not even read your security, you know, the SEC filing and so on. All he or she wanted is to sit there to look really smart and uh, want to get a big allocation. We can flip it and sell it next day. Uh, so uh, this time around, uh, people actually read through everything. There's lots of parking space. You can just walk up there, and if you know, <laughs> if you uh, if you want to stay behind a little bit, they might even ask you for lunch. Um, so so they want to understand. They clearly have marked up the the the, the so-called S1 document. Uh, a lot of an analysis about your, your core competence, how you can sustain them and, and your business model and so on. So much more thoughtful investing, right? So, the, so that is important uh, to um, fact to, 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 to answer your, your pre-public versus post-public operations. Uh, because of all this very thoughtful investor mentality, uh, you really have to stick to what you tell them in your IPO roadshow. What is your vision? What is your business core competence? And how do you drive that core competence into uh, a business model of, of gross profit and, and, and net profit? And, and, and it makes you just have to think much harder rather than just go. It's not just speed. It's thoughtful speed, right? And, and then this other, uh, so, so the, the, the issue of whether, you know, pre-public and post-public, what, uh, what, what are the trade-offs? The trade-off is very simple. When you when you are competing with large giants, respectable ones uh, for that matter, uh, as we are, uh, you credibility is very important because you're going in and trying to solve. You know, you are, you're going to go in and you offer to be the secure wireless infrastructure for all of Microsoft's sixty thousand employees. You know, three hundred fifty sites, sixty-six country. You better be able to look people in the eye and say, "I'm going to be around." Uh, and I'm going to respond to contingency uh, uh, speedily and so on. And, and as a private company, uh, you, you tend to um, have to exert a lot more convincing power for people to believe that. And it's also easy for a competitor to say, oh, you know, they might be procured, uh, they might go out of business, they might be this and that. And, and so, so you have to spend a lot of energy. Uh, the, the, and, and then once you get the, the, the IPO actually in the case of Aruba, is not for the purpose of raising money because we, you know, at the time we IPO, we have probably like 20 plus million dollars in the bank. We were cash flow uh, neutral to positive, and so, so we really don't need the money. But we, we went out and we raised 100 million dollars. Uh, in that process, you get a branding process, you know, a branding uh, of, of your corporate image. Now people kind of uh, read about you in Business Week and in Bloomberg and so on, and and and, and suddenly. 
uh, you get that exposure to the CIO uh, and, and, and CXOs and so on, so that when the technical uh, team selected your technology, you, uh, you don't get this blank stare from the, from the high management, say, Aruba who. Uh, now, the, the burden that we have to pay, like I mentioned early on, is uh, uh, you are under a lot of more scrutiny. Another thing is, of course, in a small company, uh, one of the things uh, the advantage you have to, to, to attract talents is through stock options and, and, and all these um, uh, niceties. Uh, but, but, you know, a, uh, after being public, you are, you are under the, the so-called, um, you know, the generally accepted accounting principle, the, the, the uh, gap uh, accounting, and you're under a lot of uh, constraint of uh, issuing stock options or else your company will never be gap profitable, right? So those are kind of the, the big thing uh, that's on top of the, the well-known Sabin-Oxley you know, mm -hmm. compliance and so on. Interesting. So essentially, the going public gives you a tremendous <coughs> amount of validation and credibility and sort of puts it on a lot of people's radar screen. Yes, and, and to the extent that uh, it's worth all the other stuff that come, come of it, because uh, uh, one of our, our objectives uh, about, you know, by, at the time that I took up the, the post is clearly establish ourselves as the alternative um, to, to, to Cisco in this space. And uh, uh, at that point in time, there was uh, Motorola Symbol and then a whole bunch of other startups. So our objective is to, to, to break away from, from all the pack. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad to say that uh, by the June quarter this year, we are we absolutely, from market share point of view, we have outdistanced Motorola and outdistanced all the others. So, so now our objective is to be equal to Cisco. Super. So let's move a little bit away from strategy because, you know, these folks are really interested in what it's like to be a leader of a company like this, a fast growth company. Now, you are the CEO. You know, who do you turn to for advice and guidance when you end up with a really challenging situation? Do I need to worry about my install base? <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I... I um, well, first of all, I have a very strong board of directors, um, and, and I actually pick within the board of directors uh, two, two gentlemen who have been my boss before, and people said I was crazy, but I said, I, I don't know, I, I, like, to, I like to walk, walk into the boardroom to feel I'm being challenged, and, and challenged critically, you know, and, 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 and with very wise people. Uh, so, so I use my board a lot. Uh, I also use um, uh, management uh, I won't say management consultant. I actually use more um, psychological consultants, psych psychologists, uh, quite a bit in the last ten years of my um, uh, my, my management practice. Because ultimately, when, when you're talking about running a company, it's all boys. It all boils down to people, and it's all boils down to your executive team working as a team. You know, there is no lack of talent uh, in the Silicon Valley, but the, 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 the fundamental issue is when you put or A plus players in, 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 in the same room, do they operate uh, as, as a single team? And, and that is where you really get into a lot of uh, uh, counseling and, and, and looking at each person's psychological profile and, 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 and strength and, and, and deficiency and, 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 and kind of convince them to, uh, to take the, to take the, the counsel and, and, and work as a team. So, so I'm... I'm uh, all, all the all the uh, all this counseling and 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 advice is really uh, built around uh, uh, creating a very powerful, effective team. Because 
the leader of a, of a company like a Ruby Networks is, is fundamentally uh, is there to solve crisis and take advantage of opportunities, right? And which means there's no fixed formula. There's, no, there's nothing written down in a book. Every day you, you, you go to work, you listen to, to the radio, and you listen, you know, you, you, you check on the web and see whether there's a new thing that happened that might look innocent, uh, but might hurt you 90 days down the road or even in a year. Uh, and um, uh, uh, or something that you could, if you quickly react to, take advantage of, uh, because the, being a CEO, if you are, if you are a really, really uh, enlightened one, you would not want to dig into the day-to-day -day operations of your staff because that's what you, you have your staff for, right? So, so I, I think I, um, I work with um, advisors, consultants, and so on in, in that framework. Uh -huh. Have there been any really surprising things that they've? made you aware of? I mean, what would be the most unusual thing? Because you're obviously a very introspective, thoughtful person. You have a lot of experience you know, in management roles. Was there anything that was particularly surprising? Uh, I, I would say the, um, one surprising thing is people really, when they are very powerful and they experience, uh, it's amazing how hard it is to change. Right, uh, uh, in terms of the uh, of the reactions and behavior, uh, that th that is one thing that I learned over time. Uh, the other thing is has to do with my management style. Okay, the, if you want to go for speed, then uh, um, and thoughtful speed, then you have to trade off between a lot of discussion and analysis versus going with the gut. Right? Uh, so in order to do that, uh, what, what I have is a phrase uh, that summarizes the methodology we call brutal intellectual honesty. Okay. What it is, the, you know, there's too many decisions to make, there's too little time. And in order to not just use your gut, sometimes your gut's wrong, then you, you, you tank very precious time uh, to retract. What you want is to get all the facts and opinions and wisdom and, and experience out on the table, have a really honest debate about it, given a limited period of time, and then at the end of that period of time, you say, okay, I, I have enough opinions and facts. Let's make a decision and go, right? In that process, you need people to be very thick-skinned because I feel that if you look into a lot of situations, people uh, get bogged down uh, into very emotional argument or political situations and so on. It's, it's when they have... Uh, projected out a theory or, or a certain way of doing things, a certain architecture and so on, and they put their passion, which is good, and their ego, which is dangerous. It would be, and then you see people locking head and they get themselves into a position that they cannot back off. And then they have to find all kinds of way, uh, either to face, uh, you know, lobby other people to support them and so on, or save face and so on. That is incredibly time-wasting, right? And if you recall, this time is the only a, a competitive uh, resource that we have in our hand. We cannot allow that to happen. So what I encourage is, uh, is people to be thick-skinned about it and put everything out and don't, and, and don't defend it with your ego. And let intelli intellectual um, honesty dictate, right? And that's what, what is it. And, and the brutal part is the tricky part. A lot of people uh, apply it to the other guys. What I really meant when I created the term is to apply it to yourself. Uh, that, 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 that when you really put forward a very passionate argument and when you actually get convinced intellectually it was, there's a better way to do it, 
be brutal to yourself and say, okay, yeah, you're right. You know, I put, I put my best foot forward and my next try, I go and do it your way, right? So, so in that process, I found out that there's an immense amount of counseling uh, that was needed because fundamentally for people to be thick-skinned, they have to be very uh, confident, right? Uh, and, 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 and somehow, you know, people carry baggage in their life and so on. And, and, and not every people is as comfortable with themselves as you think they are. And, and so a lot of the work is really to, to get them to be comfortable with themselves enough in front of their peers to achieve what I, I, I need to, to do, which is the brutal intellectual conscious methodology. So a lot of the, uh, the, the trend I saw is uh, around that area. And that, that's probably tied to my emphasis on thoughtful speed. Now, I can imagine that running a company at this speed could be a 26-hour-a-day endeavor. So how do you manage sort of work-life balance when you're trying to go so quickly and accomplish so much? And so has first, that changed? And has it changed over time? So, so first of all, I, I want to uh, um, have a disclaimer. I'm not, uh, I'm not the perfect example of this work-life balance thing, okay? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and second of all, I, I really... I really believe that in a lot of the situations in Silicon Valley, the, the work-life balance is not the right concept to use. The reason is the term work-life balance implies the same thing called work. There's certain kind of life, but, but I'm here sitting, talking to you, and so on. Is it work? Is it life? I hope uh, I'm not dead. Uh, um, um, I feel this is work, and life is too. Right? So my point is there are people... Who take you know? I'm sure there are you know across the the world that that take the x number of hours per per per, per, per week that they have to work is really to for the for for the substantial benefit uh, for them to support their hobbies and the uh, you know sustenance and, and so on as, as a human being as a family right. So if you really look at that that way, that is a section of your day that is dedicated to creating uh, you know take home resources and the, and then the other part of the uh, the date the is to consume the resources, then, then you have to balance that, right? But with, in our world, you know, with uh, all this buzzword virtualization, miniaturization, uh, globalization, the mobile, you know, mobility and so on and so on, uh, you, it's very hard for people who has passion about what they're doing to define what is, what, what is life, what is work. I think they're going to be or messed up, right? Because uh, I mean, I don't have the, I don't have the privilege to, to observe somebody like Picasso how they work. I mean, I doubt it very much. Is it ten o'clock, son of a gun, I have to go to work? Uh, let's start painting, right? And then so six o'clock, I have to hit the pub. Uh, so so you know, when people really inspire and, and have a passion for the work, they they carry the work with them. That the issue is the don't let technology drag you down in the sense that it's okay to come up with an idea while you're driving, while you're showering, and, and so on, but don't let that Blackberry distract you every five seconds so you cannot enjoy a conversation uh, with your kids or with your, in your case, with your you know, um, significant other or whatever. Uh, so so I, I would advocate the, 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 the concept of a, a balance of, I, I don't know what, what this thing called, that, that you keep a a, a, um, a a balance of mind share and a certain control of, of, of time management. Right? I think time management is getting more and more important. 
And uh, if you look at all the brilliant uh, uh, people that, that, that succeed in the business world, uh, that they, they have an incredible uh, faculty of, of um, mind power and, and, and um, an ability to balance and, and control resources, mean energy, time, and so on. In my case, I have a, I'm, I'm very passionate about things, uh, but when I get passionate, I totally lose track of my, time, uh, my sense of space, times, and so I, I, I absolutely lose track of that. So I, I knew my deficiency, and so uh, since 1994, I hired an assistant whose almost only job, at least predominant job, is manage my time. Right? She get absolute uh, uh, you know, authority in, in, in dispatching me to do anything. I surrender all my awake time to this lady. And, and so, and she would arbitrate, uh, and I would tell her my priority, right? So, so and, and then you have to learn on, on, on techniques, uh, on, on, on trying to how to fill up uh, your, 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 your time. And, and, you know, that's this uh, famous saying uh, uh, that, that if you have a, a fixed-sized bottle and you have a bunch of rocks, a bunch of, you know, pebbles, a, a bunch of sand, and uh, what's the way to fill that up? You know, and they're all random. How, how, how do you fill maximally the, the, the largest mass? And, and the smart guy will fill in the rocks first and use the pebble to fill in the, the cracks and then use the sand to fill in the space, right? Rather than you just throw everything in random. But we don't do, and, and if the, the space inside that bottle is the aggregate time we have each week, uh, I doubt, doubt it very much that people wake up in the morning and look for the rocks and, and fill that up and then look for the pebble and fill it up first, right? So in fact, uh, uh, I, once I, I, I found out this, this is, it's the right way to do it. I, I set up a new terminology. You go into my staff meeting. Uh, first of all, they review the rocks, and then they review the pebbles. <laughs> pebbles, and normally we don't have time for the sand, right? By the time you're done, uh, and, and actually, unfortunately, recently my, my company is moving so fast now they have to create uh, this new category called boulders. Uh, <laughs> so because the problem is getting bigger and bigger, we have opportunities getting bigger and bigger. So but my, my point is, uh, for me, it is no longer a, a, a work-life balancing. Is really basically balancing your your, your resources, your energy, and, 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 and your time um, across uh, uh, all the things that you need to do. And, and you will find the only way that you could work so hard and still feel you're enjoying it is, is you take the work as part of your life. But, but of course, don't preclude it to your loved ones. Well, so you also have a lot of experience working in different parts of the world. Um, do you find that it's very different when you're working in Asia or working in India or working in the United States? Um, are there different business practices, cultures that you have to keep in mind when you're working in these yeah, different so, regions? So the, yeah, so, so for record, I, I did uh, move around a bit. I uh, started out of a software division for HP in Singapore. I ran marketing operations for Asia in Hong Kong, and then I started a couple of laboratory in Japan and lived there. And, and also I work very closely with the, the French division in, 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 in HP in Grenoble, and, and even various uh, part in the U.S. Uh, uh, when I run, uh, was the president of Nortel Content Networking uh, Business Unit, I um, uh, have a, a lab in Ottawa, and so I have a taste of the, the Canadian, how it works, how they think, and the laboratory in the boss, and so on. So, um, and, and then, of course, on the business side, uh, different way of doing business, and so on. So I, I would say, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, to project a, a very uh, regimented 
way of classifying this because this is a dangerous song because it's culture, and geography, and so on. Uh, but I would I would put some uh, uh, general generalization. I would say there's one pattern I see that is different domestic in the U.S., uh, particularly in the Silicon Valley compared to the rest of the world. And then I would like to perhaps highlight some similarity. I think there's the net is there's more similarity than than this um, difference. The one major thing that is, uh, I think, is different um, in, 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 in the Silicon Valley is because possibly because of this emphasis on speed, we tend to, in business, to be uh, transaction-oriented. You know, we look at project uh, at a time, one transaction at a time, and so on. Uh, if you look into Europe and look into Asia, uh, people tend to have, the, have a, a longer time frame, and they, 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 they emphasize more on relationship. A relationship uh, not only is dealing with the, the, the people part, but even the relationship between two entities. Uh, even one is a, a supplier and one is a, 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 a procurer. Uh, a relationship in that sense meaning a sequence of gifts and take in multiple transactions. So, so we, you, don't, you don't push the guy to limit every uh, transaction and, and declare that's a, a win, right? Uh, so so I, I, I feel that that is um, that generally uh, more inclination um, in, in domestic uh, market and, and operations to kind of look at one, one project, one transaction at a time, right? So that is kind of the, the major difference. Uh, the similarity, you know, I, I have only had the privilege to work to, you know, uh, in, in the scientific community when I was in, in the research and academia and environment and then, and then the high-tech industry, so I can only speak in, in that narrow uh, field. Uh, I say people are crazy. They work incredibly, in, incredibly hard, right? And and uh, unreasonably hard, you know. And to the to the point, sometimes it's caused physical pain, you know. Uh, why? I I always curious why. When I go to different places, they they, they all do. It is it's not just the Silicon Valley. You go to Singapore, you go to Kobe, you know. You go to Shanghai, you go to different places. So I, I talk to engineers. I like to, um, you know, after, after the normal workout, you kind of just pick people's brain, have a beer, and so on. And uh, I find that if I generalize why people work so hard, uh, and of course there are people who don't, and I'm, I'm talking about when I talk to people who work so crazy, uh, crazily hard, uh, I find that there are only three reasons, common reasons, between a French engineer and uh, East Coast U.S. engineers and a Silicon engineer, Silicon Valley engineers and a Japanese engineers is, is uh, first, people fundamentally want to make an impact. You know, they, they don't they feel this thing that they spend all this energy on makes a difference. You know, it makes a difference for the company. Make, most importantly, it makes a difference in the world out there. If, I, if you tell me that if I finish this thing, you can ship. A million units, and they're all sitting in living rooms, and they feel they feel proud. They feel good. They they actually feel like there's an impact, right? So this impact, making an impact thing, is just very strong in in, in at least in the industry that I work for. Second is uh, you know people will work that hard only if they feel it's fun. Fun meaning not that particular moment that you really really have to fix this thing. I only giving you five hours. Uh, fun meaning that this is a general environment that I enjoy. I, I enjoy the colleagues, and I think they're smart and, and they're not obnoxious. And uh, people, you know, 
above me, below me, they are, they are good people and so on, right? So they, they want to have fun, they want to have impact, they want to have fun. And finally, they want to be rewarded, right? They, and reward can come in two forms, you know, of course, uh, the first one is, okay, financial reward, I want to work so hard, company, you know, go IPO the stock and I, 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 want, to, I want to get uh, my mortgage paid down and so on. Uh, but the other part, it is less emphasized, but equally, maybe even more so, is they want to be recognized. They want to be heroes, you know. Uh, in a very small sense, uh, a pat in the back, uh, a, an acknowledgement in a, in a coffee talk, and uh, they, they want to feel proud in front of their peers, right? And, and it goes back to all this dignity and uh, uh, things. So, so uh, in a nutshell, I, I feel there are actually more similarity in those areas uh, than, than, than difference uh, in the area that I mentioned. Well, let me ask you one more question and then open it up. And the question is one I often ask speakers, and that is, what do you wish you knew when you were sitting in their place? When you were a student, and here you were a you know, biology student and a physics student, what do you wish you had learned when you were in school or gotten exposed to that would have helped you as you're in your position now? First, I have to think about how I was like when I was a student. <laughs> uh, OK, so I. I I, for, for all the time I was in schools, you know, through all the degrees, I was only a, I was a science student. So I have no idea if you higher class MBA student and engineering students, how, how you think, right? Uh, uh, as a science student, all the way up to the PhD level, um, I feel in the scientific academia environment, it is a strict meritocracy environment, but the, but the unit for meritocracy is the individual. We went out of the way to give credits for some research done and so on for the individual, you know, the, uh, to the extent that you have a paper that the list of orders longer than the paper itself, right? and, uh, if it's a short paper. Uh, and uh, I have to uh, take the caveat and say now large and larger, larger and larger uh, budget project like in a high energy physics uh, research project and so on, you, because the, the budget is so huge, you have to forge a collaboration between Slack and the Fermilab and so on. So, so you, you have the collaboration, but fundamentally, culture is getting, giving people in the individual credit uh, for for the creation, in the innovation of the thoughts and and ideas and implementation and experiments and so on. I found that if you really got a degree in that kind of environment, you move into a business world. I find it took me like four or five years to adjust. Is in the business world, individual merit doesn't count. You know, the, the fact a, a consumer decided that Coke Zero is way better than New Coke and this is not as good as Pepsi One and so on, has nothing, they, they, have, they have no idea who invented it. Is it a group, is it a team, or it, and so on, right? So, so in the business world, all it matters is whether the project is successful, and successful is defined by where the customers are buying it and loving it and continues to come back and, and buying it, right? So uh, I think, I think it, it took me a long time to adjust to it because once you sink into the team winning and the cross-functional, it's not just engineering uh, uh, created a you know, really good product and marketing screw up and therefore we didn't, you know, that, that, that's besides the point. The whole idea is the are we winning market share. Is, the customer buying and enjoying, right? So, so this whole teamwork concept, way, way beyond uh, the, 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 
the individual recognition. I mean, obviously, we recognize individual for the contribution and so on. But the mindset from day one is think about the end result. How cross-functional team can, can achieve that. And it doesn't matter. If the team wins, everybody wins, right? That, that I think, is, uh, I wish something that I have a real-life experience uh, tasting when I was a student. It, it would make my adjustment uh, from, from, from academia to, to, to real-life uh, industry a lot easier. I think the wonderful thing is these days, most of the students get a lot of opportunities to work on teams, and yeah. uh, which is a little different than when you and I were both in school. Yeah. So Absolutely. let me open up to questions. Who has a question? Yeah, back there. And um, what we're going to do is repeat the question, because I think uh, for the mics. So can you just repeat the questions? Okay, the first question, if I understand it, is um, um, is it in general a hopeful case that because the incumbents are so busy with the inertia that is keeping the success that the small company should rightfully have a hope to get a crack in some of the business that, that they, they either architecturally or the business momentum don't allow them to address? Is that, is that the, the, the gist of the first question? Yeah. So, so I would say the most important thing is to define success, right? I mean, uh, because of our transaction-oriented nature, the short-term-oriented nature, because we are in America and in, in the Silicon Valley, sometimes we focus too much on initial successes, right? Uh, uh, because, you know, 100 companies get funded, maybe, I don't know, four get IPO, and so that when you IPO, you feel like that you you had the success. But you think about it, right? Aruba reported $41.7 million uh, the last quarter, okay? Cisco reported $9.3 billion, right? Uh, so is it, a, it's, is it something to celebrate that you can find a $41.7 million crack in a, in a $20 billion uh, environment? Uh, to find that crack, there, there will be many, many ideas that are available for you to get those cracks, right? The, which points to one fact. Good idea is not difficult to find. It is execution, the operation excellence to get through to productization and marketing and, and supporting your product. That is important, right? So a lot of companies fail not because they didn't find those cracks. Right, the, the four or five companies that got get IPO out of the hundred companies funded is, is not because they got the four or five best ideas. I think probably a lot of them get the good idea, but it's just the four or five of them has the tenacity and the and operation uh, management skill to to get it, carry it through. Now, the fact that you carry it through and, and form a, a bit of a uh, initial success is by no means assurance of longevity of a company, right? which uh, is kind of uh, tied to the second question you asked, which is what keeps me awake at night for Aruba, right? So in my view, in my space of enterprise class network infrastructure for the large companies, the Fortune uh, 500 and global 2000 companies, 
A critical mass company in this space is roughly annual, annualized for $500 million, half a billion dollars, I think. And, and then you, you can claim that you have established a franchise of some sort. You have created a niche right, in, in, in this, and it can be ongoing. Or else, the big, like I said, the only reason that the big guys let the small guys move along is because they're too busy doing the big things. And 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 so when but when you're big enough, then it is then they no longer ignore you because now it's not small enough for them to ignore. So they will come in, and they try to really point a gun at you. And then if you're not careful, you do not create your differentiated position, your customer loyalty. That is when companies start faltering, right? They 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 came out and they become two hundred, three hundred million dollars a year, and then they go away because now they're getting the attention of the big guys. So, so I think uh, people should define what success is and don't, don't um, uh, declare a rival too soon, which is uh, for both of my company that I took public, one of my biggest uh, concerns is I keep reminding people that basically by going IPO, we have passed the qualifier wrong. Uh, uh, now we get to play, right? And uh, don't, don't walk around and um, feeling that we have arrived and don't put your stock price and your net worth on the screen, sc screen saver tied to the stock price and so on. Um, and that is an equally remaining vigilant and, and continuing to innovate and continue not to let that uh, space, uh, that the initial success slow you down. Because you think about it, we have now 3,000 uh, 500 customers worldwide, right? Uh, compared to Cisco, I don't know, half a million dollars, half a million customers. Now there is a startup behind us that uh, I mean, I could tell you that, uh, as I know, of the multiple uh, uh, companies that went around Sand Hill Road having a business plan that's called Aruba Killer, Aruba 2.0, or whatever, and, you know, all the nice names. Uh, they do not have the the inertia of the 3,500 customers. So at that scale, my blessing is my curse, right? So how do I not lose my speed relative to the guy who has half a million customers, but not you know, continue to use the speed to and, 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 and agility to innovate? But how do I not, not let the other guy who has only 50 customers do one to me like I did to the other guy? So I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, so that really is, uh, the, the job that I'm, I believe that the board paid me to do. Yes? Um, your comments about going IPO, that it was more about branding than it was actually raising money so that Aruba Networks is now known amongst like the executives and the, and the board. Um, when, when you're going into to try to get a new potential client, what is the best way you found of getting sort of a champion in that company so that when the IT department goes to the executive team and says we want to implement Aruba, then the executive team can, can be more comfortable with that decision? What? So the question is, um, uh, you know, re in relationship to my comment about the IPO uh, process is, is, is more about branding than bringing in cash, uh, how does that help um, um, in, in, in customer acquisition in the sense that when the technical teams recommend in an account um, that, that they want to go Aruba, how do, how do we influence the executives, uh, right? So uh, I, I think, um, well, first of all, uh, I'm not saying that we don't like that $100 million that, that we brought in um, uh, that, that, that sits in the bank. Um, the ultimate thing in, 
in, in, in people's mind. They, people have more problems in the jobs than, than just creating a, a wireless network, right? So you, you have to make people feel, okay, I'm taking problems off your plate. Uh, I'm not creating problem uh, for, and, and level anxiety for you, right? So, so you have to go in and understand at a CIO, a chief marketing officer, and so on. Point B, what is this? What, what is the solution? What help them at their level, right? If it's the CIO's major problem, uh, operation expense uh, control because uh, you know the the corporate top line is being squeezed, or his charter is to use IT as a competitive advantage, and so on. So, so the first, most important thing before you go in and see and executives understand from their perspective what are they looking for. And I think a lot of uh, high-tech marketing um, uh, people forget it's, it's not about you, it's about them, right? Because they, they, they have the budget. Um, so that, 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 that is the key thing. So when we go into the CXO and so on, the, if they are functional uh, executive, meaning the head of sales, have a product development and so on, you have to understand what's the pain point, right? And, 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 they have to have enough pain point for them to say, I want to overcome the anxiety of anything new. Fundamental people don't you know, like anything new, except you know, maybe cars or clothes and so on. Uh, so that is the, 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 the main thing, right? And, and you talk to the CFO and the CIO uh, and, and, and of a different industry, you have to, you have to um, address them that way. Great. Another question? Yeah. So I kind of want to go back to where we started, where you said that you got some of some of the experience you got from HP, you started applying to what you're doing now. So I kind of wanted to know um, what your what are the HP values, and how did you apply them to a small business, and which ones did you think did not work? Did not work. Well, I think if you, you know, there's a book by it, um, Dave Packett called HP. Well, the question is uh, uh, a little bit more detailed explanation of how HP Way can be applied in the startup environment and, and of all the HP uh, Way values, what tend to work and what not so, so better, right? Not as well. Um, I mean, of, they, they do three-day seminars on, on subjects like that. And uh, for me, I just focus there. I think if you get a book uh, written by Dave Packett, a uh, uh, very small book called the HP Way, and you look into it, there was like seven or eight value putting in there. Um, I just pick on you know, one or two, and I blend it in, 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 in one area, which I find work again and again, is fundamentally give your employees respect, you know, dignity, and, and associated with that, uh, trust so that they feel empowered and to go out and, and innovate and and through that process kick off the passionate part of the, the the brain and from then on it's kind of uncontrollable right that you get the the energy uh, out, of, out of that uh, and, and the reason that I think that it worked uh, very well is um, is that because people are people, you know? Whether you work in a startup, uh, whether, whether you're in a large company, if you go down to to to, to that level of psychology, uh, is no difference. Uh, the thing that I found, you know, I, I have my um, 
scars on my back uh, as well. Uh, that that uh, in the OHP way, um, that in the execution of that, uh, that has less tolerance in the outside of HP environment is how much time you give, you know, people when, when they want to test them out, obviously you want to give them longer and longer rope. I mean, if it doesn't work out, how do you, the feedback cycle, right? Um, uh, I think at least in the HP that I left, we tend to give people too much benefit of the doubt. <laughs> if, if something doesn't work, try this, try that. And, and, and what you find in a startup environment, since time is such a, a, a big essence, and you don't have the inertia to carry you uh, for, for, for mistakes, right? Um, the, the flip side of not, uh, being able to go fast is when you tank, you tank. There's no inertia, okay? And, and so but, uh, one, one of my first error, and, and, and I remember that uh, that was after I left HP, and I know I want to do a small uh, startup, but at that point in time, I, mean, I was managing 1,000 so, uh, of people, and I don't want to jump to manage 30 people, so I choose an environment. Uh, in Bay that I managed a, a, a small section. And, and I really was not happy with my performance there because I fundamentally do not appreciate suddenly now I, have, I, have, I don't have that inertia to help me now. Uh, it's, it's, inertia is there, but it's much smaller. And I, I think I give uh, the feedback uh, cycle too long. So I think that is the one caution from experience uh, that, that, that I learned that I, I want to share with you. Um, I was wondering what your, uh, how you feel that your advanced scientific degree impacted your abilities or your career path in um, management business. Okay. So the question is, um, uh, how do I feel about my advanced um, uh, scientific degree, uh, my master's and PhD, in uh, uh, helping my management in business? Is that a question? Okay. So, um, first of all, I try not to let people know because <laughs> um, then they look at you and PhD. No, no, I don't think uh, uh, that's right. Uh, I would say, you know, if you ask a lot of people who've, who've gone through the, 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 the PhD thing and, and then end up in management, uh, they would say, well, you trained me in my analytical capability, the question, and so on. Uh, that, that is true, but it is very generic. You can go through a lot of other routes to, to gain that analytical. For me, being in where I was, I was very, very lucky to be working with why both I was in physics at Caltech and when I was in neurobiology at Caltech, I was working with people who was pushing the state of the art uh, of their research. Through that observation of just how people handle question, what's the scope of the, of the problem that, uh, that they handle, uh, that, that they, they, they want to ask, um, uh, give me one major psychological insight that I think a lot of the, uh, my counterparts do not have, it is the courage to face uncertainty. Okay, a lot of people are just not comfortable when you are actually at the edge. Uh, you know, when, when you have a business plan, they say, okay, how do you define your market? What's your objective? How many market points of market share uh, the, the, in year two of your business plan you can achieve? The answer is if you're a good entrepreneur, say if, if you really can segment that market that well and predict in two years what your market share, it's not worth going. The big, gun, the big gun's already going at it, right? So you, the only way you can have a chance to succeed is to go for area where it cannot be defined, actually being segmented. And a lot of people are just not comfortable with that. 
But, but in, in your pursuit of really good scientific research, that is exactly where you, you want to go. And, and another thing is, the flip side of that is, you're not afraid of failing and then having to re restart. Right? I mean, that, that, that comes hand, hand in hand. Uh, but you cannot get locked in too long. And that is really where another aspect of the brutal intellectual honesty come in. Uh, another aspect of that, other than just applying it uh, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the staff level, is at the executive level, is you want to invoke, you know, when you are in territory like that, you need the courage. And how do you, how do you derive the courage? So you derive the courage by having a passion. Passion is derived from a vision, right? And vision, vision the good visions is, uh, are that you are ahead of the game. Those are the good visions, right? And, and that means you could be dead wrong. A lot of people, the problem they have is they, because they need that courage, they have to invoke they psych themselves up, so to speak, right? And so, so when you work on something that people don't see and then you wake up in the morning, I have gone through many times I drive to work, I don't know whether I'm visionary or some, the grandest delusionist in the Silicon Valley, right? And I've, I fluctuate within a month several times depending on that ASIC working or not and, and the people who are the deliver software and so So, so my, 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 my point is the whole scientific training of pursuit of truth, and let truth dictate it, and not afraid if you get a wrong answer to go back and find another one. And and that brutal brutality you apply to yourself to be totally driven by intellectual integrity. If you are wrong, after two and a half years of digging down and getting the product, say sorry, <laughs> go back rather than waste another two and a half years uh, by justifying to yourself because you're not uh, ready to give up the, the previous investment. So I, I think that's a, that's a key insight. Great. Thank you very, very much. I know Jeff has a presentation. Jeff and Kimber have a presentation for you. We actually have three thank yous to say. And the first is to Dominic Orr for his wonderful insights today. So thank you.